0: Recently, I saw a bumper sticker that kind of struck me funny. I don't know how it would strike you. The bumper sticker said, Jesus is coming. Everybody look busy. Isn't that odd? I couldn't believe it. I had to look, look at it. Jesus is coming. Everybody look busy. As it, and since then, I've discovered through Instagram and Twitter, there are churches that are actually putting this on their little street signs, you know. Have you ever seen those in some of these smaller churches? They have these little signs where they change them out each week. And they've shown the, this very same phrase on these signs. Jesus is coming. Everybody look busy. As if Jesus is some kind of a uncaring, impersonal boss that's constantly checking in to make sure we've got, we have something to do. And if we don't, well, just fake it till you make it, basically. You know, when I saw this, it, it just—it struck me funny for a number of reasons. Number one, when I there was a time when I was in college, and I used to work for a daily newspaper in um, my college town called the Statesboro Herald. I was working in the layout and production department of this newspaper, and I'll never forget that it, at the Statesboro Herald they had three shifts: they had a morning shift, an afternoon shift, and an evening shift. The morning shift I never could work because I was in school. I, so I sometimes I'd work afternoons, sometimes evenings. I actually preferred working the night shift, even though I would have to work until 2 a.m. for one good reason, and that was because at the night shift none of the middle managers were around. They weren't around with their little clipboards checking to make sure everybody looked busy, and sure, and really they did. In the afternoons, if you're on the afternoon shift. Even if it was a slow day and there was nothing to do, if you knew a middle manager was walking by, you need to all of a sudden look really bu- busy and intense for a few minutes before they, until, they, until they left. In fact, you know, I had a, super, a shift supervisor on those afternoons. Great lady. She loved me. She loved the work I did. But P.I. was, she just like, you're on your own here, bud. If they walk by, good luck. You just do the best you can. She would actually signal us when they were getting close to the room to kind of get us all ready. And she'd actually do the very same thing that she was telling me to do, look busy, it, whether there was something to do or not. So I don't know, maybe that's why this, uh, this bumper sticker struck me wrong. But I don't know about you, whether you're a follower of Jesus yet or not, do you really see Jesus like one of those middle managers, expecting busyness when he returns? I mean, wasn't it God's idea that we have a Sabbath rest? Wasn't that his idea? I'm not sure when this really started in this country, but somewhere along the way, business became a badge of honor in America. It became something of of a virtue rather than a vice, something to be proud of, something to show your importance, something to use to avoid doing other things that, truth be told, you really don't want to do. I think I can think at least as far back as 1951, there were cartoons even for kids depicting busy schedules and lives. Do you remember this one? The White Rabbit and Alice in Wonderland? I'm late, I'm late for a very important date. No time to say hello, goodbye. I'm late, I'm late, I'm late. And if I wave, I lose the time I save. In other words, if I even take the time to say hi to you because I'm so busy, I'm going to lose precious time. Since then, there has been one technological innovation after another over the decades that have promised to save us time, that have promised to give us back time, but instead has only taken more time away than it's given to us. Thank- I was trying to think a few days ago are there any technological advancements that we've had over the last 50 years that have actually given us time back rather than taking time from us? I-, I thought of the washing machine that's one. Maybe you can think of any others, but there aren't too many. Now, 50 years ago this year, there was a Senate subcommittee hearing. Ooh, doesn't that sound exciting? Senate subcommittee hearings. And I want to share with you a finding that they had in that Senate subcommittee hearing in 1967. This is what they discovered. Computers, satellites, robotics, and other wizardries promised to make the American worker so much more efficient that income in GNP will rise and the work week will shrink. They said, our findings indicate that by 1985, people will be working just 22 hours a week or 27 weeks a year, or they can just retire at the age of 38. <laughs> Who knew? I could have retired years ago. The average work week since 1967 has actually increased for full-timers another five hours a week than it was then. Thank you, technology. But I believe technology has made our world smaller, hasn't it? I mean, thanks to the news, thanks to the Internet, we know about tragedies and the needs all over the world so quickly. I mean, we know about famines and fires and floods and hurricanes. They're constantly before us. In fact, there's so many, we are so aware of that these days that it can even feel overwhelming, can't it? I mean, I don't know about you, but so many times I see the infomercial about the the starving children or I see CNN talking about the floods in Houston or whatever it might be, and I just kind of become numb to it. And it's like I want to do something, but the thing I think oftentimes we say to ourselves is, well, if I just had more time or if I just had more money, then maybe I could do something to make a difference, but really I don't have those things. So we just wait for something else to come along. Something that might tug on our heartstrings a little bit more, that might somehow prompt us to do something, because all these other things, it's just, it's just too much. The common reaction, I think, is to just do nothing. To think, well, if I had more time and more money, then I could make a kingdom difference. We've been conditioned to believe that we never have enough time even though we have just as much time as we did back in 1967. In fact, we actually have more than they had 50 years ago because we have longer lifespans than people did then. Now, this all started a conversation uh, a couple, few months ago, this idea, with the preaching team that I meet with a couple times a year. Well, uh, sometimes people ask me, David, where do you come up with your messages? Is there like a denominational or national headquarters that just sends you those and tells you what to say, absolutely not. <laughs> Even if they did, that would have that would bear no interest to me. But um, I, so what I do is a couple times a year, I will meet with a group of people, some of them who preach on Sunday mornings to help fill in for me. But also some others who don't necessarily preach on Sunday mornings, but who have great ideas. And we pray together and we brainstorm what's going on in our community, and our world, and kind of brainstorm sermon series ideas. And one day when we were meeting a couple of months ago, we were talking about this. And we started wondering, what if instead of feeling entitled to the resources that we have, to our time, our talents, and our, our treasures... What if we did a, had a mental shift and we realized that we were being entrusted by God with those things? And then after we were meeting that day, I started thinking about that more. And I started thinking, you know, what if we also understood what Jesus taught us? That we're entrusted with more resources when we use the ones that we have to their full potential. I mean, Luke six thirty-eight, Jesus says, give and it will be given back to you pressed down, shaken together, and running over. Jesus is telling his disciples, to the measure that you use the gifts that God has entrusted to you, God will give you more, regardless of what those gifts are. In fact, Jesus even gave this story in Matthew 25 of three servants of of, of a master who was getting ready to leave. And this master gave these servants different talents. And as he was leaving, he said... "Um, I want you to invest these. I want you to use these well. And then the master gets back. And maybe you know the story. You know, This one guy who was entrusted with a lot of talents, he he did the best he could. He tried to use them to his fullest potential. And he had more to offer back to his master. And the master said, well done. What was his response to this man? I'll give you more. I'll entrust you with more. Because I found that I could trust you with what I've already given you. And then it was the same with the second servant. But then the third servant, who was only given one talent to manage, said, well, I just kind of knew how tough you were... and I decided not to do anything with it. What was, Jesus, what was the master's response to that individual? Was to condemn him and to say, what you even have, the gifts I've entrusted to you... I'm going to take back and give to someone else to use. Now, there's one verse in particular, a verse that I think it can kind of serve as a theme verse for this series... called Entrusted over the next few weeks... And uh, it speaks to these gifts that we've been entrusted with. These gifts of time, these gifts of uh, finances, and the talents that God has given us. Second 2 Timothy 1.14, it says, Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. In other words, the gifts that God's entrusted to you, protect them with your life. Don't handle them flippantly or just leave them on a shelf and say, I'll do something with them later. Now, in this series, we're going to see that God's perspective and God's desires around all the things that he's entrusted to us in this world. And we're going to start today with this gift or this investment of time. To speak to that sign that I was or that bumper sticker that I was talking to you about a little bit earlier this morning. Here's where I think we need to go this morning. That God doesn't expect us to be busy believers, but he does expect us to be selfless servants, willing to offer our time however he asks. I'm going to say that again. God doesn't expect you or me to be busy all the time. He doesn't expect us to be busy believers always running around with our, like as we say in Georgia, chickens with our heads cut off, trying to look like we're doing something important. But he does expect us to live selflessly. We have a beautiful picture of this in John chapter 13. I want to encourage you to turn there this morning if you have your Bibles. John chapter 13. This is a story that has really impacted me over the years. And maybe it will for you as well. As you're turning there, let me offer up a quick word of prayer. God, as we go into your word today in John 13, I pray that you would speak to us. God, even as we are here this morning, I know that in this room, there are many of us, we're talking about business and we're talking about our schedules and many of us are thinking about those things and all the things that we have to do. God, would you help us to truly lay those things down and to focus on you this morning, to hear your still small voice in the midst of the noise that kind of of chases behind us each and every day. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, as you're you're turning to John 13, let me just kind of set the scene here by saying this setting that we're going to be looking at today, it couldn't have been more difficult for Jesus. Jesus knows in this moment that one of his own, this guy named Judas, is about ready to betray him. Jesus knows that he is just hours away from the worst agony imaginable, his crucifixion. Yet he knows how, things, how, that how tra- things transpire in the next few moments of his life, have the ability to change the world and the ability to give people an eternal future in heaven. And faced with all that, how does Jesus choose to spend the very limited time that he has left on this earth? John 13, verse 1. Let's find out. It says, before the Passover celebration, Jesus knew his hour had come to leave this world and to return to his Father. He had loved his disciples during his ministry on earth, and now he loved them to the very end. It was time for supper, and the devil had already prompted Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had given him authority over everything that he had come, that, and had, that he had come from God and would return to God. So he got up from the table, took off his robe and wrapped a towel around his waist and poured water into a basin. Then he began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that he had around him. Now, most likely, this was the night before Jesus was betrayed, which would have been the night of the Passover meal. Now, in those days... The dirt streets of Jerusalem and every other town were dusty, but they were also typically full of garbage. And that was normal back then. So people's feet were washed when they entered someone's home because they were really gross. (laughs) I mean, a hospitable host back in that time, they would wash um, the guest's feet, number one, because it was polite, but number two, because they didn't want all that nasty stuff coming into their house, Right? Now, a host wouldn't necessarily clean a guest's feet themselves because that would be beneath them. I mean, that's the job of a servant, a slave. That's not the job of a host of a home. Now, the disciples arrived here at this location, and there was no servant at the door to wash their nasty feet. So what did they do? Well, they just went right on in and kept, brought their nasty feet with them. I mean, they didn't wash their own feet. They didn't wash either each other's feet. I mean, that would have been gross. There's no servant to do it. There's no slave to do it. No big deal. We'll just deal. And then Jesus notices it, and he just gets down on his knees and does it himself. Now, think about this for a moment. The most menial job imaginable The job that no one wants, the job that no one would dare to do, the job that certainly the the leader, the teacher, the master, the rabbi should never do, that's the job that Jesus chooses to do with the limited time he has left on this planet before he's crucified. Why? Why would he do that? Was it even really necessary Well, if you look back at verse one, you see a couple reasons why Jesus did it. Number one, it says he did it because he knew he was about to depart this world. He knew that there were very few things he had time left to do on this planet. And he thought that one, serving others in a selfless way like that, that was worth his time with what little time he had left. Now, if it were me, (laughs) that would have been the last thing I would have chosen to do. I mean, think about it, especially if you knew that the people that you were going to be washing, that they were going to be ditching you within a few hours, that they were going to be betraying you, that they were going to be abandoning you. I mean, how many of you would sign up to go wash their nasty feet, right? I I certainly wouldn't. If I had been Jesus in that moment, I would have cut out early. I would have gone to that hillside and I would have started praying earlier. Like, God, okay, plan B, now's the time for it. Come on, God, let's let's, let's brainstorm some options here. I wouldn't have been wasting my time, excuse me, washing your nasty feet in that moment. No one would have faulted Jesus for doing that that night, to just cutting out early and saying, you know what, I just need to be with God right now. But he doesn't. He does not because he sees this is the most valuable use of my time. And number two, another reason he does it, we see in verse one, is because he loved them. Despite what they would do, he loved them. A few chapters before, back in John 13, Jesus said to them, you will, people will know that you are my followers, that you are my disciples. How? Do you remember? By, by how busy you are? <laughs> by how you love one another. He says, that's how people are going to know that you follow me. He even... Washes the feet of the guy named Judas, who he knows is getting ready to betray him. And in Matthew 5, Jesus says to them and to us, pray for your enemies. And in that way, it says, Jesus says, you will be acting like true children of your heavenly Father, of your Master in heaven. Jesus made his followers very uncomfortable that night. By serving them like this. They didn't think he was supposed to be doing it. In fact, Peter got upset and he just said, No, Jesus, you are not washing my feet. He saw this as so beneath Jesus, he said, Absolutely not. Look at verse 6. When Jesus came to Simon Peter, Peter said to him, Lord, you're going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, You don't understand now what I'm doing, but someday you will. No, Peter protested, you will not wash ever. My feet. And notice what Jesus says. He says, unless I wash you, you won't belong to me. Unless you allow me to put myself underneath you and to give my best to you. Unless you allow me to make you uncomfortable by giving you my time, my talents, my resources, whatever I have then you can't be a part of me. Now, I understand Peter here. I, I do. I, I get it. There, I can give you a good example of this. Several years ago, I've told you some of the guys some of this story in the past. One of the most life-changing experiences for me was about a decade ago when I w- was in India for a period of time, for a few weeks. And during that time, for a while there, I was serving amongst some nomadic Muslims Uh, in Kashmir, which is on the border of India and Pakistan in the Himalayas. And we were in such a remote area at that time that there was no hotels around for us to stay in. We actually had to stay in a campground area um, for, for a couple of nights. And I thought it was a great idea because, I mean, we were in the base of the Himalayan mountains. It was gorgeous. But the women on our team, they didn't like this idea so much. They didn't like the idea of staying in tents out in the middle of nowhere. But on top of that, what they really didn't like... Was and this was the kicker for them that we were, they were going to have to use squat toilets while at this campground. Now I don't know if you've ever been to India and you've, or in another place and you've seen a squat toilet. This is actually a fairly clean one that I saw one, at one place in town. I, I wouldn't, I couldn't even go into the bathroom to take a picture of the one that was at this place. It was so bad. I mean, it was just revolting. And for our women on this trip, after all that they had been through leading up to this, after ha- having vans broken down the side of the road in the middle of nowhere for hours and eventually having to be picked up by Indians on bicycles and driven into town during the middle of the night, after being in the middle of a riot in Srinagar in the northern part of India and being it's, Muslims were getting angry at ugly Americans that were there, and then to have this happen, to ha- walk into this campground and to know for the next two days I'm going to have to be using that. It, you could just see the tension in these women's eyes. Now, one of us guys, we went to the owner of the of the campground and I'm like, listen, guy, you need to clean this. This is this is disgusting. And he actually laughed at us. He's like, I'm not doing that. Are you kidding me? Clean that? You see, in India, that was that was not something a manager would do. That was so beneath him in India. Bathrooms, public bathrooms, were cleaned by the Dalit, by the Untouchables, the ones who were at the lowest caste of society. And if they weren't around to clean them, then they just didn't get cleaned. That was their job. It certainly wasn't the job of the guy who owned the campground to clean this disgusting bathroom. And while the guys are arguing with the manager to try to get him to clean it, there's a woman named Kathy who was the the wife of the host that we were staying, that brought us to India who quietly grabbed some Windex and some rags and got on her hands and knees in that mess and started cleaning it without anyone knowing. We later found out it was her. Now, one of the women on that team was a woman by the name of Sherry. And by the way, I can't wait for you to meet Sherry. Um, When I go on sabbatical this next summer, her husband, Dwayne Cross, will be filling in as the pastor here. And hit. Sherry Cross is the most amazing woman. I love this woman. But Sherry was not having a good day that day. (laughs) She was with me on that trip. And that day just kind of broke her. And then she found out what Kathy had done for her. And her, her description was, that was my foot washing. That was the day that I received something I didn't deserve. She still talks about that day in that KOA kind of a campground when that woman cleaned that disgusting bathroom. She actually texted me about it just a few days ago and reminded me of it. She said, we actually came there to serve her, to serve her people. And then she turned around and served us. I don't know if you can relate to that. Has there ever been a situation in your life where someone did something like that for you? Maybe they didn't wash your feet. Maybe they didn't clean a disgusting bathroom. But they did something for you that they should have never done. That was just emblazoned in your brain. They humbled themselves to a point. They gave of themselves so sacrificially that you can't forget it. That's what I believe Jesus is talking about here. Maybe you can think of a situation like that in your own life. Where God asked you to do something that your first response was... (laughs) Are you kidding? God wasn't kidding. In this story today, Jesus sets an example for us by showing us a couple of things. Number one, that a servant's time is subject to the will of his master. Christ could have decided, you know what, I don't have time. I, look, at, look what my next 24 hours is like. I don't have time to wash these guys' stinky feet. But he didn't. Jesus was never too busy for other people. You know, there's a, uh, there's a theologian, by the, probably one of the, the best uh, authors and theologians of the 20th century. There's a guy by the name of Dallas Willard. He died a few years ago. And just before he died, he was interviewed by a journalist. And one of the questions that this journalist asked Dallas was, he said, what was the, What's the most important thing to keep in mind about living the Christian life? What's the most important thing, Dallas... ...about living the Christian life. What do you think? And his answer was this. He said, the key to spiritual growth... ...is to ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. The journalist looked at him and said, oh, that's that's really good. You got anything else? And he said, nope. Actually, I don't. That's it. Because he believed, and I think he's right... ...that if we don't get that right, guys... We're sunk. There was more to be done on this earth than Jesus did. There were more people to heal. There were more crowds to teach than Jesus taught. But he was careful to listen to the voice of God each and every day and to make sure with the limited resources he had that he made them count. Not in the eyes of the world, but in the eyes of his master, of his heavenly father. God says to you and me, seek first my kingdom, and I will give you everything you need. The time you need, the talents you need, the resources financially you need, you've got it. But seek me first, and I'll give you all that stuff. Guys, we live in a culture that celebrates everyone looking busy. That sees busyness as a badge of honor. How are you doing? Oh, fine. Busy, busy, busy. But there is a depth of life that doesn't get experienced when we are self-absorbed and we bounce from one appointment, one task, to the next. When we allow ourselves to stay busy, we can't see or value doing the things that God puts before us to do. How many of you know that there can be times in our lives when we can be so busy that God puts an opportunity right in front of us? And we can't even see it. Right? I know that's been true of me. It has to be. You know, there's a great video, and I, won't have, I don't have time to show it to you this morning, but it's in your online sermon notes today at www.mygrace.church. i would encourage you to watch it later today if it's, if it's of interest to you. It's about discerning our call in life and realizing that there is no perfect calling in our lives hiding under a rock somewhere that we're waiting to discover. We find our calling in lives in our lives by being faithful day by day to our master and him entrusting us with more as we do so. If you've ever found yourself hesitating or wanting a clearer picture from God of what he has in store for you in this life, I would encourage you to watch that video and see how God stirs in you as you do. The big question, I believe, for us today, though, is this. Are we willing to give up what is most precious to us, which may be our time or perhaps even our pride, to show love for others? Others whom we may not even know very well. Others who we, we may serve behind the scenes and no one even notices. Let me ask it to you another way. If if you were to have your time audited by a CPA, if so if the CPA was to open your pure calendar and investigate it as he would your checkbook, how would you feel about what he would find? You know, here at Grace, we have what we call the big three. It's in your programs every Sunday. It's, uh, it's in the, the the text that we send out to many of you who want to text each Thursday, um, listing the big things that are going on in the life of Grace. Because let's face it, in the community our size, there's stuff going on almost all the time, right? Just about any day of the week, there's a ministry going on. There's a place that you can grow, a place that you can serve. And so what we do as a staff to kind of help you is to highlight three of them each week and say, if you only have time to look at three of them. Just look at these three. And it's been helpful for some of you. As my preaching team was meeting that day a few months ago, there was a guy in the group by the name of Tim Henson. He's here this morning in our first service. And he was, he was saying, You know what? My boss asked me that question sometimes. He comes up to him and he asked me what my big three are. In other words, he was asking his boss sometimes asked ask him, What are the top three work-related things that are on your plate today that you're dealing with? And as he was sharing this with us, he said, it makes me think, what are my big three in other areas of my life when it comes to God? Let me ask you, if you had to, if you had to pinpoint them this morning, what are your big three gifts or talents that God's entrusted to you to use? What, what do you think? If you had to just narrow it down to three, which would be the three that you would say, I know God's given me that gift, that talent, that ability... To do that. When it comes to your, how you invest your, your financial resources, what would you say your big three are there? Those three things that you find yourself constantly wanting to invest your finances in, to give to others, because you believe with all of your heart God's saying to do so. When it comes to relationships, who are your big three? Who are those, who are, if you had to narrow it down to three, who are those three people in your life that you know without a doubt God's put them in your life because he wants you to use you to make a kingdom difference in their lives. To be Jesus with skin on for them. Whether they know Jesus today or not. People who are going through real challenges perhaps this season of their lives. And God's saying, pay attention. Pay attention to what's going on. And be there for them. Your homework this week, if I can assign some to you, is to just think about that. What are your big three? What are those things in your life that you just know God's saying pay attention to? Now I want to do something as I'm wrapping up this message to help you with this homework assignment for for this week, but also for the entire month of November. Our ushers are getting ready. They're going to hand you a little blue gel band or bracelet this morning. I'm wearing one right now. And it has just simply one word on it. And it's the word entrusted. Here's what I'm asking of you. I'm asking you to put that gel band on this morning and to leave it on for the entire month of November. And each and every day, as you're at your workplace, as you're at school, as you're in the grocery store, wherever you are, every time you look down and you see that word entrusted, that you remind yourself that God has entrusted you with gifts and talents and resources that he hasn't trusted other people with. He's decided in his wisdom, to entrust them to you. He's entrusted you with time, whether you recognize it or not. Maybe you say, God, I wish you'd entrust me with some more. I get it. But he's entrusted you with these resources. And I want to encourage you to wear this as a reminder, not necessarily to other people, but to yourself, that God has entrusted me with much. And I will do my best to use what God has entrusted me to its fullest potential. Not so that I can get the accolades of others. Don't care about that. But so that I can give praise and glory to my master. My heavenly father. Would you, would you be willing to do that with me over this month? To just uh, kind of remind yourself of that over this month? It would be great. I would love that. You know, as, um, as a community here, I believe that God has entrusted us at Grace Community Church with so much. Hasn't he? I mean, Look around. I mean, this is first service, and so there's some seats that are kind of empty. It's normally second service this time of year is when it gets kind of full in here. But even look around this room. Look at all the people that God has entrusted to be in this community, to make a kingdom difference here. This isn't an accident. This didn't just happen. God has brought us here this morning. God has brought us here as a community to make a kingdom difference to share Christ's love with Tucson and the world. And guess what, guys? It's going to take all of us. Over these next few months, we have so many challenges ahead of us. God's been, God's been blessing us in so many ways that we're now, we have now had this incredibly ble- wonderful problem that we need more space. And we're launching a Space for Grace campaign pretty soon, in a few months, to try to help us figure out how to expand our campus. Why? So that we can love more people into the kingdom. So that we can reach more people for Jesus. So that we can have more classes like Grief Share and Hope Spring in the middle of the week to help people who are struggling. We have more rooms to be able to offer those things during the week. So that we can have uh, Alpha and other things like that on a regular basis, more more life groups that can meet here that can be a safe place for people to share life together, share their burdens, and take one step closer to Jesus. We're not doing this just because we think we need something good to do. We're doing it because we believe with all of our hearts that God has entrusted us with much. And he's asking us to take one more step of faith. Are we willing to do it? Are we willing to work together and do it? I believe God is going to knock our socks off over this next year. He is going to do some things in our community that we can't even imagine as we realize we have been entrusted with much.